President Trump became the first sitting president to address the National March for Life in person on the Mall in D.C. I was there as the president spoke. And so in the podcast that follows, I'm going to give you some of my thoughts and analysis about this interesting and historic development, both in the Trump presidency and, more importantly, the pro-life movement. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another thrilling and stimulating episode of Blind Politics. This was not originally going to be the topic of this week's podcast. I had a podcast recorded in the middle of last week about impeachment. And if I do say so myself, it was a thoughtful, carefully balanced, highly analytical case about the current state of play in impeachment. It was all ready to go. Kylan, my wonderful and ineffable, I guess, producer and, and graduate assistant had everything shipshape in, in Bristol fashion to launch that out on Tuesday into the ether. And then, of course, the bombshell last night dropped in terms of John Bolton in his book, essentially having some, some comments that may well have substantiated one of the major claims about the quid pro quo. So rather than send you guys a podcast that was potentially behind the times already, what I decided to do is hold off on impeachment for right now, wait and see what's going to happen with the whole John Bolton discussion, because honestly, Bolton is really the main cog in this. Those who've been following the Facebook page for a while can find one of my previous posts where I said, look, the most important thing that we need to know about this entire investigation is what John Bolton is going to say. And so what I would say is I'm going to hold off on that, hold off on discussing impeachment. And for now, what I want to talk about is something that is probably not getting as much coverage or the coverage that's coming out of it is, is I think, missing some key points. But the fact that President Trump spoke at the March for Life on Friday. So if you heard any coverage of this in the media at all, what you probably heard was that this is just a sign of the degree to which the pro-life movement now is a Trump movement. And so, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this as sort of a Trump march and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I can say, having, having been on the ground, is that, yes, there is a lot of support for Trump among people who are at the march. There are a lot of people who are certainly very supportive of Trump. Perhaps everybody who was there, I would say, is probably a little bit more supportive of Trump than they were before they left. That doesn't mean that everyone at the march is going to vote for him. That doesn't mean that he is unanimously locked down the pro-life or, or evangelical votes. And, you know, if we look back in the not-too-distant past, there were editorials questioning Trump and questioning Trump's character in places like Christianity Today. So what can we draw from this? So it's interesting being at the march as a person who was, was there for basically as a participant observer, right? So I was participating in the march. But you can't ever really turn your inner political scientist off, particularly when you're in a political gathering. And any anytime you go to a DC protest march or a DC march of any kind, you're going to see some fascinating political dynamics, albeit, you know, depending on the march or the, the, the movement that's protesting there that could look a little bit different. But there's always kind of this element of weirdness around the fringes, regardless of the protest. There's always that. There's always kind of a theme that comes out in the march as a whole. And then there's reception. There's how's that that march received by the outside coverage? Because I think when you're at an event like that, and then you come back and you, you hear the way people are talking about it, it's often very jarring, does not jive with the experience that you had at an event like that. And that's probably true for, for just about anything. So it was interesting being there 
with that perspective. Now, what I can tell you is that I was not anywhere close to where the president himself was speaking. We were on the other end of the mall. And partially that was because of when we got there, but also it was because, frankly, none of us wanted to give up our backpacks and security was, as you might expect, totally nuts. What I can say is that we were able to hear the speech being broadcast at the time, and that this speech was a little bit different than your typical Trump speech. So when Trump is really revving up his crowd, when he's doing a campaign rally or an event that is like that, he goes off script often. He goes off script on purpose. He goes off on sort of long digressions and tangents about whatever's happening in the news at the time, and particularly if it's relevant to him. Um, and this is where we've seen some of his more spectacular, and if you're not a Trump fan, which, you know, depends on the day, I guess, for, for some of us, but some, some might say ill-advised rants about the people that are coming after him and why they're doing this and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes it gets very personal and gets very strange, but his supporters seem to really enjoy that sort of thing, right? So that's a typical Trump rally when he is comfortable, when he is on his thing, and it really seems like he gets very jazzed and energized and enthused from that. That's not what we saw at the March for Life. Trump was on script. There were points where he sounded like, honestly, someone who is being forced by the teacher to read their homework assignment out loud. And Trump can get that way when he's reading a speech, particularly a speech that, you know, he didn't have much in the way of crafting. And the themes that he focused on were interesting. So he spent a lot of time talking about how 2020 is the 100th year anniversary of the right to vote, the women's suffrage amendment. And he spent a lot of time talking about the role of women in the pro-life movement. Now, forgive me if this sounds a little bit strange to some, but the idea of Donald Trump and feminist in the same sentence is not necessarily one that I would say anybody's going to jump right out and say that's the first thing that pops into your head. But why is he emphasizing women so much? Well, number one, because this is something that the pro-life march is emphasizing this year. It's kind of the year of the woman for them in terms of the March for Life. But also, just demographically, and I, this is the third time I've been to this march, two times I went when I was in D.C. and you know this time coming up from Hampton Roads. The degree to which the march is dominated by women is something that's hard to really grasp if you're not there. It's a very, very high percentage of women, particularly of young Catholic moms, are a, like core on-brand demographic for the March for Life outside of St. Peter's Square. It might be the single greatest density of young Catholic moms of any place on the planet. And then you've got also Trump talking in language that is not particularly Trumpian. And it sounds like his speech was written by a pro-life speechwriter, cognizant of the fact that this is a historic occasion, the first time the president's addressing the March for Life, and wanting to make sure that all of the most important elements of a speech like that are going to get hit. Right. So Trump ad-libbed a little bit. Uh, there was one veiled reference to impeachment where he kind of said, they're coming after me because I, I'm fighting for you. We can debate whether that is in fact why they're coming after him or not. But that's about as close as he got to addressing what was happening with impeachment. So this is a very atypical address for Trump. And what does this mean? So here's my analysis of what this means. My analysis is that even as much as, as the pro-life march and pro-life movement are touting this as a win, right? And for them, it, let's, let's be 100% clear. Whatever you think of Trump, this is a win for the pro-life movement because you've now set a precedent that a president will come to the march and speak in person. And do I necessarily think that a future Democratic president is going to honor that precedent? No, probably not. But the next time you get a Republican in the White House, and there will be another Republican in the White House, regardless of how things go for Trump, that's a precedent that has been created that future Republican presidents, as they're dealing with the pro-life movement, are going to have to think about. But Trump could have done that at any point in his term. All right, why is this happening now? Why is this happening 
in the way that it did, where Trump is is not really trying to yank things in and make it all about himself, is really kind of staying on message for the most part with a few minor exceptions from what I could tell. And again, hearing the speech from a distance, but was able to make out every word pretty much clearly. What does this tell us? What it tells me is that Trump recognizes that he needs the pro-lifers right now very badly. And he needs the pro-life movement. He needs pro-life voters. He needs those pro-life women who don't like him. Most pro-life women under a certain age really don't like Trump personally. And so he needs them. He needs their support. He knows that. And so he's willing to give them something in the hope that it will keep them on side. And that's what this was. This was Trump coming to and courting the pro-life movement because now he needs their support more than ever. And he needs their wholehearted, undivided support as he's going into what's going to be a tough year. Facing impeachment right now, he needs those Republican senators to stay rock solid behind him if he's not going to get impeached. And by the way, Trump's impeachment's not necessarily a disaster for pro-lifers because Mike Pence, his vice president, who would become president in the event that he's impeached, is himself pretty firmly dedicated to the pro-life cause and has spoken at the pro-life march, the March for Life, many times in the past, right? So I think Trump recognizes that he needs a personal bond with these pro-life voters, that they're going to actually support him as he's facing that. And then even if he survives impeachment, which looks a little bit less likely after the Bolton revelations of Sunday night, but I would say less likely than it was before that is is still kind of a low bar. So, you know, in, in all likelihood, he will be the Republican nominee moving forward and the incumbent president moving forward toward re-election. But then there is that re-election. And convincing 20 or so Republican senators not to jump ship and vote for his impeachment is going to, in some ways, be a lot easier than convincing the 80,000 swing voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that he won last time that he needs to hold if he's going to win the election, that he needs to vote for them. And what do Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania have in common? A large number of pro-life Catholics, in particular pro-life voters outside of the urban areas, outside of the urban core of Philadelphia and, and the collar counties in Pennsylvania, outside of the Detroit metro area in Michigan, outside of Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin, got a lot of pro-life voters there. And I can tell you for a fact that the agenda the Democrats are pushing on social issues does not play well in those states. How can I say that? Well, in Wisconsin last year, there was a candidate for judge named Brian Hagedorn, and he was attacked by his opponent for starting a Christian school that, gasp, shock, horror, believed the same things about social issues that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And this was seen by both Republicans and Democrats as such a guaranteed slam dunk way of beating Hagedorn that the Chamber of Commerce pulled their endorsement from him and he was outspent by his Democratic opponent's technically nonpartisan race, but his liberal opponent, and Hagedorn is a conservative justice, outspent him by a vast margin. And Hagedorn won, and not only won, but won comfortably in Wisconsin. Okay, uh, And that should tell you something about the type of voters that Trump is trying to appeal to here. Ted Cruz won Wisconsin. Okay, Trump won in, in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, but in Wisconsin, he did not win. In West Michigan, all right, which is an area that's fairly conservative in the primary, he did not win there either. Okay, so these are people who are probably more transactional Trumpists. They did not support him in the primary. Maybe they did afterwards. And there are limits. These are not going to be your unconditional, you know, MAGA hat wearing Trump supporters. These are people who support Trump because of things that he has done to advance their specific issues. And they know that it's transactional and it's not necessarily because they like him. It's because they are convinced that he will deliver the policy wins they want him to deliver.
And so this was important for Trump in that sense of reminding those voters why he wants them to come home, sort of making the pitch for himself by showing up and making the pitch for their cause and for their argument. And to me, that's what happened on Friday. It's not a situation where the pro-lifers are coming to Trump. It's much more the reverse. He's coming to them. He wants something from them. He needs something from them. He recognizes that fact. And so he's willing to pay the cost of that and set a precedent that could potentially in the future be something that the March for Life is going to be able to take advantage of. Will it work? I would say chances are pretty good that he's going to get the type of support that he wants out of those pro-life voters. And I would say chances that there's going to be a substantial backlash are pretty slim. Democrats are pretty much all in on the, the hardcore position of supporting abortion up until birth. They're pretty much all in on things like wanting to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which Trump certainly mentioned in his speech. It does not look like there's going to be any moderation coming out of the Democratic Party on that issue. So it's not like he's going to lose. anybody For anybody for whom the pro-life issue was important, was probably not going to be voting for a Democrat for president in 2020 regardless, simply because the Democrats have actually lurched significantly to the left of where they were, even under Obama. You know, even where Biden was before is not where the Democrats are now. So that is not something that he necessarily needs to worry about. What would be more worrying for Trump if it materialized, but it probably won't this year, is the development of an actual party of the left or pro-life left-wing alternative. And there is space for that. A couple of the speakers that came after him were pro-life Democrats from Louisiana in the South. There are pro-life Democrats. There are African-American voters who are leaning a little bit more on the pro-life or at least the socially moderate, socially conservative perspective. But they see the Republican Party as a party that doesn't like people like them. And they are genuinely further to the left on economic issues. That's also a constituency among Latino voters who are an increasing demographic segment of the population. And so the bottom line is there is a potential opening for a pro-life party of the left. Nothing like that exists now. There's no infrastructure for it at the moment, but I could see something like that developing. And I think in the end, it might actually be beneficial for the pro-life movement so that they're not put in a position of being forced to put all their eggs in one basket. So what we can say for now, I would say, is number one, that this is a, a situation in which Trump is quoting the pro-life movement. Number two, there is a lot of support for Trump. There was a lot of pro-Trump signage, pro-Trump paraphernalia, all that at the, at the march. But I would say that some of that support is, is probably more conditional than it might appear to an outside person looking in. And the third aspect of this is that I would say Social conservatives, evangelicals, pro-lifers, etc., have probably underestimated the degree to which President Trump needs them more than they need him. Now, I'm not saying that, the, that there is not a benefit that can be gained from this and that they, they don't need him at all, but I think the degree to which the relationship has been perceived as asymmetrical and it's been perceived that if they you know, are at all even mildly critical of Trump that you know, this is going to be a deal breaker, I think Trump at this point seems to have demonstrated that he, he needs them. He needs the socially conservative voters. He needs pro-lifers. And also that he doesn't really fully understand them. It's not He doesn't speak that language. And so I think there's a real opportunity for those, those voters and you know, even more leaders in that community as he's getting into the situation where things are getting tight, where he's you know, running out of allies and, and things look like they're closing in. You know, there's a possibility of leverage there, a leverage if carefully used, if carefully applied, that could be used in a way that would help them in the short run and in the long run, possibly even be helpful for Trump, because a lot of the things that make some of his more socially conservative evangelical and pro-life voters uncomfortable, things like you know, not not being clear and unambiguous at times in terms of 
speaking out against racial injustice. Things like sometimes inconsistencies and lack of support for involvements in the Middle East that would protect religious minorities. All of those things are areas on which pressure could be applied at this point and in which there might be leverage. And so the question that I am left with is when we look at the pro-life movement and its leaders, when we look at the leaders of socially conservative organizations and movements in general, do they come away from this? What happened on Friday, Trump speaking at the pro-life rally, understanding what the media portrayed, which is this is a pro-Trump march that essentially Trump has co-opted the pro-life movement. Or do they see what I see? Do they see someone who is coming to the pro-life march and courting the pro-life movement because he knows he needs them? And do they recognize that this is a time to potentially try to gain some benefits from this more transactional relationship? And it will be interesting to see how this plays out as we move forward over the next couple of weeks and months. Of course, all of this is going to be obscured by what's happening with impeachment, what's happening with the Democratic primary. But it is a subtle dynamic to be watching as we are moving forward, particularly given that there are some people in conservative circles or in in other orbits that have talked about Pence maybe being dropped from the ticket. I would say that based on the way things played out on Friday, that's not something you should count on. Because, you know, if Pence's people didn't have significant input in terms of writing Trump's speech on Friday, I'd be very, very surprised. So I would not assume that Trump is going to try to drop Mike Pence in favor of somebody else that he thinks is going to bring, you know, some other mythical constituency onto the Trump bandwagon. And I've heard the Trump dropping Pence for Tulsi Gabbard thing suggested. I think that would be a good way to lose the election in short order. Gabbard is more moderate on social issues than the other Democrats running. That by no way means moderate or full spectrum pro-life or anything like that. So I don't anticipate any of those things happening, and I think it would be a disaster for Trump if he did that. So how this plays out in the future, I think it bears watching. It's a subtle dynamic. It's a dynamic that might not be as observable as some of the other things that are happening right now in American politics, but it is definitely something that could have an impact both on the 2020 election and then moving forward. The final point that I'll make is that this is a danger and an opportunity for the pro-life movement. It is an opportunity because pro-lifers are actually being courted. They're being courted by a major politician, and this is an opportunity to make potentially policy gains and so forth in exchange for their support. It is a danger because one thing that we know from President Trump is that things don't stay transactional for him, and that ultimately you get to the point where he starts demanding loyalty, and he starts demanding loyalty particularly in ways that may go against your own convictions and your own tendencies. And so is the pro-life movement going to be able to maintain the kind of critical distance that you need to maintain with Trump? to make some sort of transactional relationship like that work, right? So this is a period of of opportunity because of the courtship, but it's also dangerous because you have to look at the situation and recognize that what you're being asked for initially might be transactional support and, and votes and so on, but down the line, there could be hidden costs. And so... You know, one would hope that the pro-life movement would move carefully and tread carefully as they're investigating this. But, you know, and, and also hopefully that they would understand that their movement existed long before Donald Trump ever considered running for president. It will, in all likelihood, exist long after he's gone. And so recognizing the difference between what is eternal and what is a moment in terms of politics. And, and so hopefully there are folks in leadership in the various different pro-life organizations and, and, and the movement as a whole that have that more long-term vision and see how to navigate this relationship that has changed, has deepened, has become more important clearly to Trump than ever before in, in recent days. 
And so hopefully they have a good conception of how they're going to navigate that. All right, and that's going to be a wrap for this podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Blind Politics. And I think the Twitter handle is still being finalized. May at some point do a Twitter questions or Facebook questions type show. That is to be determined. But, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do something like that in the next couple of months. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Next week, I am hoping to have a guest to talk about something that's a little bit less domestic, a little bit more international, so look forward to that. And we may do some sort of impeachment-focused podcast a few weeks down the line once we have a little bit more clarity on whether Bolton's going to testify, what the impact of him testifying or not testifying is going to be. So expect a very John Bolton-centric episode in the not-too-distant future, because the stash is in many ways a fascinating political character, and one with whom I have a little bit of history. So that might be a, a fun story that will come up in a future episode of Blind Politics. That being said, for Blind Politics, I'm Dr. Nolte, signing off.